Well, he is sweet and he is a wonder, isn't he? Sweet Jesus, what a wonder you are, our wonderful Lord. Psalm 143, your scriptures tonight, praying for God's will to be done. So much of our praying, uh, we certainly want to pray in the will of God, but there's a danger of not doing so. James tells us, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. And so that believer, sincere believer, who is concerned about the will of God, wants to know what God's will is. And so we um, are very concerned that we pray in the will of God. Psalm 143, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness... And enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. For the enemy hath persecuted my soul, he hath smitten my life down to the ground. So the psalmist, of course, the human writer is David. He is very low time in his life. What words he uses in this prayer that's recorded here by the Holy Spirit. I'm down to the ground. How low can you get? He has made me to dwell in darkness, this enemy, as those that have been long dead. He's running from King Saul. Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. That may be your case tonight. My heart within me is desolate. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. That's a good thing to do when you're in a low point. Go back and rehearse what God has done. I remember all of your works. The enemy, our great enemy, Satan, would have us to focus primarily on the present and the the circumstances of the present when we should rehearse what God has done. He has a very uh, wonderful track record, doesn't he, of hearing and answering and providing. I muse or meditate on the works of thy hands, even meditating on God's creative works, uh, the, the things, his attributes, these things always spark hope and uh, within us and faith within us to concentrate on what he has done. I stretch forth my hands unto thee. Do you see David just reaching out for the Lord? My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. Selah. Hear me speedily, O Lord. My spirit faileth. Hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning, for in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should go, for I lift up my soul unto thee. Deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I flee unto thee to hide me. Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. Quicken me. This is a spirit's work within us. Now, David is a regenerate man, but he's asking for a renewed, a revival. We could say, revive me, that word quicken. is work that only the Holy Spirit can do. Quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake, for thy righteousness' sake. Bring my soul out of trouble, and of thy mercy cut off mine enemies, and destroy all them that afflict my soul, for I am thy servant. David is pleading the promises of God. He, as a youth, tending his father's sheep, was singled out by the prophet to be the next king of Israel. He is summoned to court by King Saul under the allowance of the Lord. He leaves his home, all his familiar rural youth, to the glittering life at court. 
And David is not cut out for it. The intrigue, the politics, those, the murmurings, the, the, all that goes on in court life. And uh, he be quickly became a favorite of the king because of his music and his friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan. And then, quick as lightning, uh, Saul's uh, feelings toward David turn. He becomes paranoid and, and hating David and bans him from court. And da- David is on the run. Now, this is very similar to when Abraham was led to Canaan, called from home to go to Canaan, and then famine came. What was he to do? He's in the will of God, and yet all these devastating things are happening. Very similar in David's life. I'm sure that David could say here, uh, I'm in the will of God. He could say, I didn't ask to be brought to court. I didn't ask to be anointed the next king. And Saul knew that David was the next king. But Saul uh, could not come to the, the grip that God was sovereign. He would work things out in his own time, in his own way. And uh, Saul would have a successor. But Saul destroys his own life and ends his life in suicide. But that's a whole different story. But David is here at God's bidding. Why am I undergoing these things? Why is everyone against me? Why do I have to run for my life and live like an animal in a cave? And in the midst of all that background, David prays, I want to know your will. Teach me to do your will. Now, it's one thing to pray for God's will in an air-conditioned building and padded pews or in your nice homes that you'll return to tonight. But the folks in Nepal who don't even have a tarp are David living in a cave and yet asking, Lord, show me your will. I want to be right with you. I want to walk uprightly before you to know your will uh, is quite another thing. But this is a beautiful picture of prayer in our text tonight. I, in verse 10, teach me to do thy will. I'm glad that the Holy Spirit records that for us because we're, we're encouraged to know that this is a learning process. This teaching to delight in the will of God and to want to know God's will, even for the child of God, for the saved. Lord, teach me to to know your will. It it is the heart cry of the psalmist for grace to know and to do God's will. Someone has said that among Christians, there's probably no phrase used more often than the phrase, the will of God. We we, uh, quote it, we say it, we seek it, we discuss it. In our uh, conversations with one another, if it's the will of God, we want to do this. We want to know the will of God. We've been talking with some of our young people graduating, their college plans, seeking the will of God. So that phrase is often on our lips. And really, there's only one thing that matters, isn't it, in life? We know that, those of us who are regenerate. Knowing and doing the will of God is of eternal importance. This is the one controlling thing about our Lord's life on earth when we examine His life. And Psalm 40, verse 7, is prophetic, speaking of the Lord Jesus. Then said I, lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me. Everything in this Bible is written of me, Jesus is saying. I delight to do thy will, O God. O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. We get a little sliver of light in in the will of God there. I delight to do thy will, O God. Thy law is within my heart. The word of God in the heart is the seedbed of wanting and knowing to do the will of God. Those who have no concern of the Word of God or very little diet of it or who don't really pay much attention to it are not going to be concerned about God's will. They're going to be concerned about their own desires and their own feelings. And so that's key. In the Garden of Gethsemane, our our Lord prayed while facing the the, the cross. He went a little further, fell on his face and prayed, saying, 
Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. The overriding desire of our Lord was the will of the Father. He said to his disciples in John 4, verse 34, he said that my meat, my existence, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, in verse 4, he prays, I have glorified thee on earth. What a statement. Oh, we ought to all be able to say that when we come to the end of our life. He was right at the end of his life, and he says, I have glorified thee. I've made you large. I've drawn attention to my Father, not to myself. I've drawn attention to my Father. And he said, I have glorified you on earth in everything that I have done. I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. What a statement. But not only did the Lord say that, the Apostle Paul had a very similar statement at the end of his life. I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I've, I've done what the Lord has called me to do. But what is this prayer of David in Psalm 143, verse 10? What does it teach us? Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. First of all, this is the heart cry of a truly regenerate person, someone who is saved. Before salvation, we had no desire for God's will or interest in the will of God. We were concerned about our will, what we wanted, what we wanted to accomplish and do and feel and think. Isaiah 53, verse 6, so adequately, uh, aptly describes it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one, every lost person, to his own way. In fact, that is the one overriding characteristic of lostness on the wrong path, doing what we want to do. But when we come to Christ in salvation, we can truly say in verse 10, Thou art my God. You see, the relationship that we have with God as our Father changes everything. We find ourselves praying the prayer, Teach me to do thy will. This is what happened to Saul the Apostle Paul on the road to Tarsus, absolutely going against the will of God, thinking he was doing God's will. And once the Lord opened his heart and mind to the Savior, to the Messiah, he, with license in hand to persecute Christians, after he, he met the Lord, he cries there in Acts 9, verse 6, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? What a change salvation makes. From being on our own road of determination to Lord, what will thou have me to do? And so submissive was Paul. He put himself into this, this Pharisee, this proud, uh, spiritually proud man, humbles himself and puts himself under the authority of a simple layman, Ananias, and goes with him to his house and is discipled by him. He submits to the Lord in, in believer's baptism. What a difference the will of God makes and salvation makes in the will of God in our lives. When we pray like this, it is a sure sign that there has been a, a genuine work of grace in our hearts. If we do not or will not pray this prayer, we ought to ask ourselves the question, am I truly born again? Am I truly a child of God? But not only is this a prayer of a saved person, we see that God has a purpose and a plan for each of his children. I wonder sometimes that some who profess to be Christians never really consider this. They think the will of God or the plan of God are people like for Carolyn Harrington and, Harrington and James Timong and preachers and missionaries and people like that. But for me, I've got my career, my job. I'm just a regular, ordinary person going through the daily round of life. What could that mean to me? 
Not any of God's children are exempt in his will. The will of God is not just to preach or to do something so-called spiritual. God has a desire and a plan for every single one of his children. First and foremost, for us to glorify him. And then for him to choose the way that he will get greatest glory out of our lives in these bodies. We see this throughout the Bible. Paul prayed this for the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 9. He says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. What? What did he pray for the Colossians? And to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will. That word filled, again, means controlled by. I'm praying for you, church members at Colossae, believers at Colossae, that you would be absolutely overwhelmed and controlled by the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord into all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. There's a correlation of becoming more and more like the Lord and increasing in our knowledge of God by doing his will. Why would God give more wisdom and more spiritual insight to someone who has no intent to do his will? It is not like going to a cafeteria and say, I'll take a little bit of that, and I'll take a little bit of that, and take a little bit of that. That is not the way the will of God is. Show it to me, what's behind door number one, door number two, door number three, and I'll decide if I want it or not. That is absolutely not the way God's will is shown. And he's not going to condescend to, uh, to play along in that way. That's why people often remain in the dark. They just kind of are in neutral. They're really not accomplishing what the Lord would have for them to accomplish in their life here on earth. When you read the lives of, of great Christians, and I would encourage you to do so, we have a, a great number of them in our library here on the reading list that we loan. Uh, people like Wesley and Whitfield and Andrew Murray and Adoniram Judson, William Carey, George Mueller, Amy Carmichael, these people. One thing you see, you don't get very far after their conversion and as the God began to work in their lives, who you, you, you cannot but, but help but wonder that these believers were moved along in the plan of God and the purpose of God for their lives. They were consumed by it. I, I think of Amy Carmichael's life. She it was a young lady who, uh, when she had a desire to go to Japan, that's where she thought the Lord wanted her to go. And in seeking the Lord's will, uh, we, we might get the cart before the horse. She chose the place, and in, in, in route, the Lord led her to India. And once she got to India, she never left. She, she stayed there the rest of her life. She never went back home to England, never went on a furlough. She uh, spent her entire life there, the last many years of her life, as an invalid in bed. She fell down an iron staircase, horribly injuring her, her back. And uh, the orphanages and the ministry she had there, they would, her workers would have to come to her window to receive instructions about carrying out the ministry. For 30 years or more, she was in that condition. You don't think of, you th- if you hear about Amy Carmichael and the great work which is still going on today, you don't realize that much of that was from her bed and all of her writings that, uh, that people revel in. And so it, it would almost seem, well, I've, this young lady has surrendered her life to the Lord's will. She's gone across the world. She's given her life to rescuing these little girls who would be sold into temple prostitution. And this is what happens to her. You know, that's the way often people look at it. How unfair of God it is to take this choice young life and then make, make her an invalid. But Amy Carmichael knew the secret that it didn't matter what the Lord did with us, but that he be glorified 
as the Apostle Paul said, whether by life or by death, but that he would get great glory. Well, we also see that God is ready and willing to reveal his will to us. It's very curious to me that often Christians are so puzzled and they act as if God is playing hide and seek with them. If that's your view of the Lord and his will, the problem is on your side, not on God's side. That's not the way the Lord works. And we often, though, do want to know, how can I know God's will? And there often is a process there. But it's not as if God doesn't want us to know. And if he's lingering and showing you specifically, he's working out the details or working on you to prepare you for what he has prepared for you. Let's always remember that God is far more willing to guide us along than we are willing to let him guide us. In fact, the scripture often uses things like, be not as the mule or the horse that has to be led around with bit and bridle. Uh, We are to be submissive before the Lord reveals his will to us. He desires his very best for us. And I think it's a a warped view, and it's a, a view of unspiritual or the unsaved, who think that God wants to make you miserable and send you to India and put you flat on your back the rest of your life if you surrender to his will. I think that's sometimes the, the, the way that people view it. Instead of from the surrendered heart that I'm the Lord's and he can do whatever he wants to for me and that will be blessed and that will be best. He desires the very best for us. Don't ever believe that, that God does not. Satan would whisper that he, he wants to, to make you miserable. Well, that's a person who is not right with the Lord, who's not viewing the Lord's will from a scriptural perspective and a yielded heart. It is possible for the Lord to allow us to have our own way, though, to teach us that his way is best. I think about Jonah. He found a ship going to Tarshish. I've heard so many people justify God's will by, it just all worked out. (laughs) There was a ticket going to Tarshish, last one there. Got it, got on the the ship just in the nick of time as if they were boarding a plane, the last seat. And uh, boy, where that trip was headed. And so I think of Jonah. Was Jonah happy having his own way, not going to the place where God wanted him to go? He was certainly not happy. Think of the difference. I was, as I was thinking of this today. The difference between Jonah refusing to know, God did show him his will and he refused it. And uh, Paul and Silas beaten by the jailer, imprisoned and singing at midnight. What, what a vast, both in dire circumstances, one miserable, the other two just praising and have a, having a singing at midnight makes all the difference in the world, our attitude toward what the Lord is doing to us and and through us. I think of the children of Israel. Psalm 106, verse 12, they believed they his, then believed they his words, they sang his praise. They soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel. Do you see that? They waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. Think of it, us tempting God And he gave them their request. What was their request? We're tired of your provision for us. We want something better. We want quail. We want meat. We want something else. One of the chief complaints of the children of Israel after they'd been let out from their chains and whips and bondage in Egypt was the food. Oh, for the leeks and garlics and the food of Egypt. I don't know about you, friend, but it's almost unthinkable to me to think about having been a slave having to make bricks without straw under the the cruel taskmasters and then all you can think of is the garlics and the leeks 
And then God so graciously provides for them his food, food sent from heaven, and they got weary of it. They would not have had to have that so-called boring diet if they'd obeyed the Lord at Kadesh Barnea and gone on into the land of promise. But even in their rebellion, God fed them and clothed them. And he's done the same for you, hasn't he? He's taking care of you even when you were not in the center of his will. All of us have to say amen to that. It might not have been what you would have had if you'd been in the middle of his will, but he kept you alive, didn't he? We're all here, aren't we, to testify of that fact. And he graciously delivered it to their door every day. They got tired of it. God did answer their request. They cried out to Moses, and Moses cried to the Lord, Your people are driving me crazy. They want something else to eat. Okay, I'll give them something else to eat. And the Holy Spirit puts it this way. He gave them their requests, but sent leanness into their soul. You see, we put more emphasis on the physical pleasure, the outward comfort, than the inner blessing of the Lord. And when we are spiritual enough, one way you'll know that you're growing spiritually when you are more concerned about the inner man than you are the outer man. When the leanness of the soul is a burden to you. Lord, I want to know you more. I am like a a deer in the desert chasing after you. I feel my heart, Lord. I so desperately long after you. It doesn't matter what you do monetarily or physically in my temporal life, but feed my soul. Help me to be in fellowship with you. All they that draw near to God, he will draw near to us. That's, That's the recipe of the scripture. We can get our way and still be a loser, in other words. Just talk to Jonah about it. Talk to the children of Israel about it. But we see something else this prayer gives us is the conditions of finding out the Lord's will for our lives. The conditions we must meet. It's not as if God doesn't want us to know. He's not being tedious with us. But there are conditions to be met. What are these conditions? Are they difficult? There are three conditions that I see here in, the, the, in finding God's will. And first of all, we must have a teachable attitude. What does the, the psalmist say? Notice there in verse 10, teach me to do thy will. The psalmist is saying, I may not be at the place, but Lord, I want you to make me teachable. Bring about the circumstances, work in me, whatever it may need be to make me want your will. Could you be honest honest enough to say, Lord, I may not desire what you want for me right now, but I want to desire it. Would you so work in my life to make me want to be what you want me to be? Does that make sense? Teach me. So we see here the psalmist may not. He's complaining, isn't he? This is a prayer that's recorded for us. I'm in the cave. My enemy's all around me. My soul is on 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 the dirt. I'm on the ground. I can't get any lower. And he's, he's giving these circumstances in the will of God. God has providentially led him there. Teach me, Lord. So we must have a teachable attitude. So I ask us tonight here at Glen Iris, do we have a teachable attitude? He had a childlike spirit and, and acknowledges his need to be taught. Jeremiah 10, verse 23, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. I mean, we wouldn't come up with it, Lord, if it was left up to us. We would mess it up every time. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. O Lord, correct me. You might need to record that verse and pray over it. Jeremiah 23.10. O Lord, I know that it's not in my natural capacity 
as a, just a natural human being to make the right choice. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. O oh Lord, correct me. Put me on the right path. Not only should we have a, must have a teachable spirit, but we must have an intense desire to know God's will. Quite simply, many people just don't want it. Again, they have misconceptions about it, that God's out to make their life miserable. Nothing can be further from the truth. I will remind you that this life is fleeting. It will not always be as it is right now. You'll not always be 30 years old. You'll not always have the energy and the vigor that you have now. You are on a journey toward eternity. And so we, we must desire to know God's will above all else. David prays here in verse 10. It reveals this. And, and the Bible is filled with specific promises to cause us to desire God's will. Psalm 37 verse 5. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him and he will bring it to pass. Proverbs 3, verse 6, In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Proverbs 16, verse 3, Commit thy works unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. James 1, verse 5, If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given to him. So there's no reason why we shouldn't have his wisdom. He tells us to ask for it. Not only should we have a teachable spirit and an intense desire to know God's will, but thirdly, we must have a willingness to do his will. It's one thing to, to want to know like in a curious way, wonder what God wants me to do, and then he reveals it to us as he did Jonas. Oh, no, 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 that's not what I had in mind. Not Nineveh. Those people are mean, and uh, they, treat the, they treat strangers really bad, and I don't want to go there. No, thank you. I'll go to Tarshish. Isn't it strange that he didn't want to go to Nineveh because of how bad he would be treated, so he went to Tarshish and he got swallowed by a whale. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know how much better you know, the treatment is, is about six of one, half, half a dozen the other. We know that when he finally went to Nineveh, nothing bad happened to him. You see, we often believe the worst. We often have what, although it could, the Ninevites were mean and fierce people. They treated their enemies horrendously. They would flay people alive. They'd plant them in the, the desert up to their neck and leave them there to boil in the sun. I mean, they did all kinds of, of, of cruel things. And, and that's all Paul, uh, uh, Jonah could focus on, how mean they were, how, how sinful they were. But God said, go preach to them. I want you to go preach to them, repent. If they don't repent, I'm going to destroy them. Not one hair of Jonah's head was hurt in Nineveh. You see, in the will of God, we are, we're safe. He takes care of us. And should he allow something to befall us in his will, he takes care of us. As we see when he went to, to, to Tarshish and he was thrown overboard, why didn't, he get, why didn't he drown? We see that when God is not through with us until he's through with us, and he will keep us and preserve us until he is through with us. So you can lay your head on the pillow tonight and not worry about things because you're in God's hand. He's going, you're not going to, he's going to do exactly what he wants to in your life. My times are in his hand, the psalmist said. And so that's where our lives belong. So can you not trust the God who knows the number of hairs on your head and the name of every star? Uh, it's amazing. The Bible tells us when we pray this prayer... We must be willing to do what God wants, whether it seems pleasing to us or painful or whether it is to what we had in mind or not. Jesus said in John 7, verse 17, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. You must know God's word. 
whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. But he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Finally, we have to ask the question, how does the Lord teach us his will? We see how that God has a will for us, what it takes to find his will. Well, how, how does he do that? Does he send us a, a, an email? Does he send us a, a message in that way? He does it, I think, in three ways. We see it over and over again throughout the scriptures. First of all, he teaches us his will by the teaching of his word. The reason the child of God should daily spend time in God's word because everything that God ever wanted man to know is found in this book. This is the way to salvation. It's the way to live our lives, to order our homes and marriages and families and ministries. All the principles of life from God's perspective are recorded in this word. He gives us general principles that cover every possible scenario. Though it may not have the name of the place where you work or the name of the person that you marry there, the principles of God are so clear and so evident that living by them, everything else will find its place. Remember that precept in Matthew 6, Seek first, first, first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Most of the guidance God gives in his word is given through certain clearly stated principles. For example, a young person may not know who to marry, but they do know this. They know, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So that takes a whole population out of the picture, doesn't it? Well, it doesn't say marry Tom or Sue. It does say do not marry an unsaved person. So that's a principle, isn't it? We start with what we know. We start with God's principles, and then it begins to narrow down. We, we might not know the name of the person, but we know this. First Thessalonians 4 tells us clearly what God's will is. Uh, he says, you know what commandments we gave you, or principles we gave you by the, the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God. How clear could it be? He's pointing. You want to know God's will? That you have, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel and saint, his body. And sanctification and honor. And so we begin to put these principles together and God will lead us and guide us down to the very person, down to the very place. That teaching in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. How many people would be out of the wrong place at the wrong time if they just obeyed that principle? I will not get involved with anything that appears to be evil. It's a very safe way to be, isn't it? You wouldn't say, I wonder if that restaurant is on fire. I don't know. Let's go in there and see if it is. We'll just eat there anyway. No. If it looks like it's on fire, if smoke is billowing out of it, we probably ought not to eat supper there tonight. You know, you just use your good common sense. And so we abstain, even in a more spiritual way, things that don't seem right, things that are, don't, don't seem to measure up with the Word of God. Until we get a green light, we should stay away from it. My grandmother, O'Neill, always used to say, when in doubt, don't. Now, you might miss some things, but that's the safe course to take, isn't it? When in doubt, don't. Well, we can ask these questions when we're determining the will of God. Will it glorify God? We see that all the way through here, don't we? God's glory. Is this choice I'm about to make, will it, will it bring glory to God? Will it grieve the Holy Spirit? Anything that grieves the Holy Spirit is not God's will. Does it conflict any clear command of the Scripture? Well, there again, we know what God's will is in that way, don't we? Will it bring me under bondage? 
Paul said, I will not be brought under the bondage of anything. If that thing has the tendency or the possibility of bringing us under bondage or addiction or, or in, in any undue relationship, then it's not God's will for us. Will it be a blessing or a stumbling block to others? You see, no man lives or dies to himself. And part of knowing the will of God is taking consideration of other people around us. I'll be honest with you, as a, as a husband and as a father, I would often ask myself the question, you know, what will this do to my children? What will, what will this decision, how will this influence them? Not just for right now, but 10 years from now or 20 years from now. And I'm asking that same question at 58 for the next generation that's coming along. We ask those questions, will this be a stumbling block to my grandchildren coming to know the Lord? That's our great desire and prayer. And it should be for all of us, for all of our loved ones and neighbors and people that we come in contact with. And it's a very uh, uh, big decision that we have to make. Will I be a stumbling block if I take this decision or will it be a blessing to others? God gives us principles to guide our lives by. And we, that's why we should daily search the scriptures. And to find these principles, write them out. Write out these kinds of things. Keep them before you. And there'll be your philosophy of guidance through life. God leads us by the teaching of his word. And that's why we should be under the constant teaching and the preaching of God's word to bring these things to mind, to help us, to sanctify us, and to to grow us in grace. But not only does God lead us and show us his will by his word, secondly, by the promptings of his spirit. Our Lord told his disciples before leaving them, he said, I, the, I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to send another just like me. Now, the third part of the Trinity, that God, the Holy Spirit. He is with you now, but he will be in you then. He was foretelling the day of Pentecost when that marked the period of time where the Holy Spirit would bodily indwell believers. Now, we mentioned that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. In fact, anything that can be done to a person can be done to the Holy Spirit. We can grieve him, we can quench him, we can do despite to the Spirit of God. The, the, the Bible speaks of, of several things, that, that we, but mainly the grieving of the Holy Spirit, and anything that would grieve the Lord would grieve the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible tells us in Psalm 143, verse 10, the work of the Holy Spirit is referred to there. We can compare this to Romans eight fourteen. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. When God would have us to take a certain step, he leads us by the principles of his word and the burden which the Holy Spirit places on our hearts. Woe to me, Paul said, if I preach not the gospel. What, was, what, is he, what did he mean by that? The, the burden of the Holy Spirit in his life that would, would, would be there if he did not obey the Lord in preaching. But still, God will never guide us contrary to his word. Never. And the Spirit of God never leads contrary to the Word of God. In fact, this is the Word of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit. But thirdly, not only uh, through the Word of God and the promptings of the Holy Spirit, but thirdly, God leads by the overruling of His providence. And again, we could mention that in the life of Jonah. He providentially provided for Jonah the, the, the fish and then the rescue from the fish he overruled Jonah's decisions to bring him back to the place to do his will. Aren't you thankful for the overriding providence of God, the leading and guiding of God in your life, even when we go astray? We could say that in the life of the, the children of Israel for those 40 years. 
God's providence still led and guided and protected them. Out in the open, no walled city, these millions of people, over a million people, maybe two million, however many people, a large number of people, so vulnerable to their enemies. Why didn't the people of Canaan attack them? They couldn't, could they? Why didn't the Egyptians come after them? God protected them, even in their, their wandering. And he overruled their decision not to go into Canaan and protected them until he brought them to that place. Well, God leads us by his providence. This means that God guides us through what we call the circumstances of God. He opens and closes doors. Paul told the the Corinthians, a great door and effectual is open for me, and there are many adversaries. We pray for that God will either open door or close closed doors. I often say, Lord, close a door that you don't want me to go through and help me not to pry it open. I only want to go through the doors that you've opened. The Lord says in Revelation 3, verse 8, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. That's the will of God, so strong that even though there are many adversaries, no one can shut that door. It's God's leading for us. Paul tells, I mean, the the, the Lord tells us there in Revelation that he leads that specifically. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, as I mentioned, that great door and effectual. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12, the door opened to me of the Lord. He often used that phraseology of the Lord opening and closing doors. And so he does it by his word, by his spirit, and by his providence in the circumstances. Colossians 4, verse 3 describes an open door of utterance. He uses circumstances beyond our control to bring us and bring about his will for us. These things will harmonize together, even though there may be conflict and trouble that will harmonize. When, it, when, it, it, when it's God's will for us to take a certain step, he will lead us not only by the teachings of his word and by the promptings of the spirit, but by these overruling providence, which we rejoice in. When you read the record of the, the, the pilgrims coming to America, when you re, read William Bradford's record, he mentions often the providence of God who, over, who oversaw all the, the, the harsh circumstances and where they landed. I've often thought, Plymouth, Massachusetts, why couldn't they have landed on, you know, down in Savannah or somewhere farther down the coast, a more commodious? The harsh, rocky Plymouth, uh, Massachusetts, and the little inlet where they, where they landed there, it could have been more inhospitable. What a worse place. And yet God in his providence led them there the friendly Indians, and all that he had uh, arranged for them. And in within 16 years of landing there, they'd already established Harvard College, you know, become Harvard College. Oh, the amazing things that God did. But when you read in William Bradford's record, God in his providence brought us to this very place. First John 2, verse 17 says, And the world passes away. It is literally passing away. We're passing away. And the world is as well. Things are winding down. It may not be today. It may not be this century. It may not be in a thousand years. I think it's much closer than that. But we know this. It is passing away. And the lust thereof, all that can be desired in this world. But he that doeth the will of God. What a promise. There's nothing like this in all the world. No guarantee like this one. No other promise in all the Bible quite like this one. The world is passing away. And the lust, everything that can be desired in it will be nothing one day. 
That settles it up, doesn't it? But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. What a statement. Well, the scripture says, Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. May the Lord give us grace to put this into practice in our lives.